Amen. Well, good morning. It is good to be here with you, even though it is the middle of July. I don't know who you are out there online, but I'm assuming you're somewhere to the north, and God bless you, and we will try not to covet wherever it is that you are. But it is amazing to be here. I loved that new song, just absolutely loved it. Uh, I'm with Ryan. We could sing it all day, and, uh, and it goes so well with what we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, we're going to continue today with our study of the life of Peter, and we are moving from last week where we were down on the Sea of Galilee to up to a town called Caesarea Philippi, and I want to show you on a map kind of where it is so you can sort of orient yourself. Jesus takes his disciples, he's walked on water, Peter's walked on water, he's got these guys, and now they travel up to the north to Caesarea Philippi, which was a Roman city, and it was characterized very much like our city by the worship of lots of different gods, except in their case, the worship of their gods took place on a giant rock stone platform with a giant rock stone wall. So because we can, with archaeology, pretty well determine what cities looked like back then, artists are able to create renderings. And so we've got an artist rendering of the city here, and you can kind of see it. So you see the big rock stone wall. Well, at the bottom of the rock stone wall is the base for that big rock stone platform. And on top of the platform, what do we have? We've got temples. We have courts. That's where the gods were worshipped. So if you go there today, and if you go on one of our trips, you will go there with us because it's one of the sites we go to. I'm going to show you a picture of what it looks like now. This is an aerial view, obviously, but you can see, and what you can't really estimate from this picture is just how big it is. Like, it's a big rock. It was the defining feature of the city of Caesarea Philippi, and artists, again, have rendered on top of these pictures... And so now you can see what it would have looked like or an approximation of what it would have looked like in Jesus' day. And so if you just start working from your right to left, okay, you have, first of all, the Temple of Augustus. Then immediately to the right of that, you have the Court of Pan and the Nymphs. And then immediately to the right of that, you have the Temple of Zeus and then sort of tucked in around the corner of that so you can't really see it. You have the Court of Nemesis. Then you have the Tomb Temple in the upper right of the Sacred Goats. And then you have, my personal favorite, the Temple of Pan and the Dancing Goats in the bottom right. That sounds like a band to me. Pan and the Dancing Goats. So if you're a musician, you're welcome. All right? But what I want you to see is that all of these gods were all worshipped and they all built their temples where? You're like, oh, the city of Caesarea Philippi. Okay, yeah, but no, where? In the city, where? On the rock. Keep that in mind. Jesus takes his guys, they leave the Sea of Galilee region, and they go up to Caesarea Philippi. It's all on purpose. He's God. He knows what's coming. They get to the city. They're sitting, no doubt, underneath the big rock because the whole city moves geographically upward to it. And he says, guys, I brought you here to ask you two questions. So question number one you know, look, we've got quite a crowd that follows us around. I mean, they listen to my amazing teaching. They seem like they can't get enough. I'm a miracle worker, which means I am their only medical hope in some cases. And so they're just lined up all over the place. I had to sneak you guys out of here, you know, in all likelihood to get away from the crowd. So we have these people, they're following me around. They're watching and observing the pattern of my life, how it's playing out, what I'm saying, what I'm teaching, what I'm doing, what's happening. And they're doing it as observant Jews who grew up in the synagogue and they knew the stories of the lives of all of these people that they find in the Old Testament that was written anywhere between 1,400 and 400 years before I was even born. Here's my first question. Who are they saying that I am? Because they're looking and they know these stories too. So the disciples start firing off answers. Well, some say you're John the Baptist. 
Okay, well, that doesn't mean they're saying he's literally John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a contemporary of Jesus. It was one of his relatives. He was six months older. He literally baptized Christ in the Jordan River. So they're not saying John is dead and now you're him. They're saying, man, we watched his life. We listened to his message. We're watching your life. We're listening to your message. A lot of correspondence. The next one they throw out is Elijah. Look, we studied his life a couple of months ago, and one of the things we noted again and again and again and again is that even though this man lived like 700 years before Jesus is even born, his life and all of the patterns in it are found in the life of Jesus. Some say you're Jeremiah. Why? Same reason. One of the prophets. Why? Same reason. Does anybody ask how in the heck that could possibly be? Like, how could it be that the patterns of the lives of all of these people that were written by all of these different authors over the course of a thousand years, anywhere between 1,400 and 400 years before Jesus is even born, are collected up and then reproduced and filled in the life of one man? If God has not written these lives and if this man is not God. So Jesus is pulling this stuff out of his guys. He's like, yeah, so who do men think I am? Like, are you calculating this? Are you doing the math on this? Are you thinking this through? Are you seeing something maybe you ought to be thinking about here? And he says, all right, so the real reason I brought you is to ask you this question. What about you guys? Who, who do you say that I am? And Peter immediately replies. Matthew 16, verse 16, it says, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ. What does that mean? You're the Messiah. You are indeed the one that all of these prophets with their lives and with their teaching have been pointing everybody to now for forever, at least from their perspective and ours. You're the one that we as the people of God, indeed the whole world has been waiting for. Like you are the Christ, the son of the living God as opposed to dead gods. I mean, we're in the city of dead gods. He's like, you can see the temples of the dead gods up there. You're the son of the living God. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. And what does Jesus say? It's beautiful. Jesus answered him and he said, Blast are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Like, you know, one of the people in the crowd didn't come up to you one day and go, Hey, you know, I've got an idea. You know, I'm thinking that maybe, I don't know. Jesus, he's the Christ, the son of the living God. What do you think? Now, this is a revelation from above. This is something that God the Father reveals uniquely to this man, Peter, and then reveals uniquely through this man, Peter. He says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, he's the one who's revealed this to you. And I tell you, you are Peter, which is a name Jesus had given to him previously. It means stone or rock. And on this rock, he says, you're like, what rock? Is it Peter? Yes and no. Now, what's interesting in this story, and we'll see it as it continues to play out, is that Peter here speaks for God, okay? And when he speaks for God, it's, it's like he's a rock, okay? There is a rock upon which the church is built. Is it him? Or is it what he says? Because later in this same story, he's going to speak for Satan. And Jesus is not going to go, and I tell you, your name is Peter. And I, no, he's going to go, hey, get behind me, Satan. He makes a rock-like statement is the point. It's the statement upon which the church is going to be built. It's the statement through which faith in, this man becomes a living stone. He lives up to his name. 
But Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, the rock of this statement that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, I, Jesus, will build my church. And not with bricks and mortars like, you know, like the temples that you guys are able to see as we're having this conversation, but instead with living stones, with people who have been made alive, with people who are filled by my spirit, who together in heaven and on earth comprise the edifice, the structure, the temple, the dwelling place for me. I will build my church and let me speak about its power and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What are gates? Because they're not offensive weapons. You know, it's not like in those days you would come up to a gated walled city, you know, and then you'd get up close and then the gates would come and attack you. They're there to keep you out, to hold you back. He's like, yeah, picture the biggest, baddest gates. You know what? Let's go gates of hell on this. It cannot withstand the assault of my church. As the people of God go forward in the power of God, with the gospel of God, the sword of the word of God, and lay their lives down, if necessary, in the battle for the kingdom of God, we will prevail. So here's the question that I want to ask today. The question is, what is a Christian? And here's why I want to ask the question. Because Jesus is talking about the church, and he's saying, you know what? It's not bricks and mortar. It's people. It's living stones, spirit-filled. So then, who are those people? What do they look like? What characterizes them? And the first thing I've got for you is that a Christian is someone who knows who Jesus really is as opposed to who people typically say that he is. Like, if you go down to Las Olas this afternoon, it would be super weird. But it might be interesting, so let me know how it goes. And you just stop people on the street, and you're like, all right, so, odd question, but nevertheless, would be interested in your answer to this. Who is Jesus? What do you get? Well, he was a great teacher. He was a great thinker. He was a great philosopher. He was a social reformer. If you believe in God, then maybe you get he was a great prophet. Some people, like, you'll stop Christians, and they'll go, well, he was the son of God, and he died for us. You know, right answer. But you get this mixed bag. It's sort of like... Everybody feels good about Jesus. They, they all lo- like him on some level. They respect and admire him for some reason. But they haven't thought it through. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says famously. This man was a great thinker. You ready? Speaking of Jesus, he says, A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said about himself would not be a great moral teacher. Indeed, he wouldn't be a great moral anything. He would either be insane or else be the devil of hell. And you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else insane or something worse in light of what he claimed. That's the idea. But let's not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He hasn't left that option open for us and he didn't intend to. Listen to what Bono says. He says, I don't think you're left off easily by saying that Jesus was a great thinker, a philosopher. Because actually, he went around saying that he was the Messiah and he was crucified because he said that he was the Son of God. So either he was the Son of God or he was nuts. And I find it hard to accept that millions and millions of lives and half the earth for nearly 2,000 years have felt their lives touched and inspired by some nutter. I agree. So what is a Christian? Well, all right, first of all, a Christian is someone who understands and and, and who knows who Jesus really is. But then secondly, 
A Christian is someone who makes Jesus known to others. Why do I say that? Well, let's just keep going. Verse 19. Jesus says, and he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And look, I understand that in this moment he is speaking specifically to Peter. Like, I get that. Two chapters later, however, he gives the keys to all these guys. Twelve chapters later, when he gives to his people, all of us, the Great Commission, go out into the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And, and then, in that going, know this, I am with you even to the end of the age. What is he doing? He's saying, look, i got a whole pocket full of keys. Come here, you got a key, you get a key, everybody gets a key. Everybody who knows the gospel has a key. Like, I'm going to give a key out to all of my people. Why? What do keys do? They unlock and lock things. <laughs> they open and shut things. They give access to, or if you don't have one, they prevent access to something. Like, you know, if you show up and you don't have a key, you know, you're like, you know, like if it's a glass door, you're knocking going, hey, you know, like, you're stuck. You're out. Until what happens? Until somebody goes, hey, man, can you, let me help you out here. Let you in. You know what? I got an extra key. Unlimited supply, like here, just take one for your friend there. Like, you know, like, now you're in. And in this case, what we're locked out of is heaven. I mean, if there's a place in the universe that you don't want to be locked out of, there it is. Like, even if you're not a Christian, you don't even believe in heaven, but you presuppose its existence, can we then agree that it's the most important place in the world, the most important place in the universe? It's eternal. And it has an alternative. Locked out. If there's any place you don't want to be locked out of, it's that. And if there's any place you don't want anybody else locked out of, it's that. For you realize that Jesus had to suffer and die and be buried and raised that you might gain access to him, to God, forgiveness, all of it. Life abundant here, life eternal there. And you realize the price that he's paid. You're like, I, I, I can't sit on this. I can't, you know, I got keys in my pocket. Like, I got to hand them out. I know it's a little unusual. You want a key? Because I see you, you're like, I mean, I don't even know if you realize it, but that ain't going to open. Like you, but I know how to help you with this. And, but the problem in this story thus far is that at this point in the narrative, these guys that Jesus is talking to, his disciples, don't understand that. They don't know what it means to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, they think that they do, but they're wrong. And Jesus knows that they're wrong. And he knows as well that every other Jewish person everywhere in this land that he is walking around in and ministering in and all of these crowds that are assembling around him also have this misconception about what it is that he's come to do, about what it means to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so Jesus says in verse 20, it says, Then Jesus strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ because they did not yet know what they were talking about in saying that he was. And it would lead to all of these expectations that he was not planning to meet. And so from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. But to do what? 
Because here's what they expected. He would go to Jerusalem to ride in on a great white horse. He would take over the throne, if you will, of Israel. He would raise up an army. He would fight off the Romans. He would establish independence. He would return the land to the glory days of Solomon. Or no, 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 even better than that. Like all the nations would be coming to him because this is going to be the preeminent kingdom in the world, etc., etc., etc. Oh, and by the way, uh, you know, these guys are like, hey, I want my position in that. Jesus deals with the indignity of having his disciples, but it's totally human nature. You can see how this would happen. We would have all done it. They're fighting over, like, who's going to be the greatest in his kingdom. And they think what that means is what I just described. This earthly kingdom, right? Like, I mean, I'm at least in the cabinet. I'm governor over, I don't know, some land somewhere, right? The mother of James and John and the ultimate mother power move comes to Jesus and in behalf of her boys, she's like, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, like, can you, can you give my sons, James and John, like your right hand and your left hand, like those positions for my boys, like you can figure out which one you want to put where, I mean, I've got ideas if you want to know and I'm going to give them to you anyway, so I'll just tell you. But anyway, like, but put them here and here, like this, you know. Okay, when Jesus comes into the kingdom, who's at the right and left? Thieves on crosses. It's a completely different conception. So from this time on, Jesus began to show his disciples, and man, it was a lot of deconstructing and then reconstructing in terms of what this all meant. He began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and what? Suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed. Uh, What? And on the third day be raised from the dead. And Peter, you know, who like at some point has just had enough of this. You know, like, come on. This is not good. Nobody's getting energized by this right now. Like, we got it going on, and then no. Jesus, you are so attractive as a military Messiah. You can heal the sick. You can raise the dead. You've just fed like, I don't know, 20,000-ish people with five loaves of bread and two fish. Like, you would be unbeatable. Stop with this suffering and dying stuff. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. For you are a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Look, all you're concerned about is is this world that is perishing, that is fading away, that is destined to be gone someday. All you're concerned about is this government and this nation and this and that and your position in it. Like you are all about advancing you by attaching yourself to me. That's what your energy is for. That's what your strategy goes to. That's what your, wow, that's an interesting filter, isn't it? Just take a look at your life and go, so how much of my energy, how much of my time, how much of my this, how much of my that am I pouring into advancing me here and gaining things that, as we'll talk about in a second, I'm just going to lay down in death anyway. Like I I can't even keep. Jesus is like, no, I'm concerned about the eternal kingdom of the eternal God, which you and everyone else, okay, will not gain admission to, 
but for my suffering, but for my death, but for my burial, but for my resurrection. Like, this is the path I have to go. And what I'm concerned about is infinitely more valuable than what you're concerned about. So then, what is a Christian? A Christian is someone who knows who Jesus is, who makes Jesus known to others, and thirdly, who trusts in what Jesus has done by means of that suffering, death, burial, and resurrection. And my favorite way of explaining this is in terms of debt, which, by the way, happens to be really convenient because Matthew was a tax collector, and his favorite way of explaining this is in terms of debt. He talks about sin and what does sin do? It, it, It creates a debt. So like, for example, when you look at Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer, he has Jesus saying, forgive us our what? Trespasses? No, that's Luke. Our debts as we forgive our debtors. And you're like, so which one is right? Is it Luke? Is it Matthew? It's both, really. Because trespasses and sins create debt. We all know that. We've all done it. Like, you know, if I offend you, if I I damage your reputation somehow because I slander you, if I steal something from you, you know, whatever. What happens? I owe you. You even say it. You owe me, Tom. You owe me an apology. We'll start with that, but there's more. You think to yourself and panic inside, how am I ever going to get even? You know, like this person took this from me and I can't monetize that. So now how am I going to get back from them what they owe to me? It's all about debt. And Matthew says that's true also with God, except with him it's a debt you can't pay. Why? Because you already owe him absolutely everything, everything you are, Everything you have, every moment of your life, past, present, and future, belongs to the Lord by virtue of creation, by virtue of redemption. He has made you to live your life 100% of the time, 100% whole heart, soul, mind, and strength for him, which is the greatest and single most dignified purpose he could give you, period. It's like if you're looking for the greatest person, the greatest thing, the greatest object, the greatest subject to live for, you can't top God. The problem is we have not done it. And the additional problem is that we can't go to God and go, well, listen, you know, I know I robbed you of yesterday, but don't worry about it. I'll pay you back tomorrow. With what? Because you already owe him tomorrow. Oh, crud. Now what am I going to do? I've committed an offense, oh, wait for it, against God. I mean, that's, that's different from offending me. Can we agree on that? Like, you offend me, I mean, how much of a big deal is that really? Not much. But we understand that different categories, even of people, create different categories of offenses. You know, like if you physically assault me, which I don't want you to do, but if you did, okay, that's one thing. You'd probably get arrested, you know, you'd have your day in court, maybe you'd pay a fine or something, I don't know. Something like that would happen. Try that on the president. They just shoot you. You know, you just, Right? But even if you survive the shooting, the laws are appreciably different. What about a being of infinite value? What is the law then? I mean, it's unpayable because the law is infinite demerit, and it's unpayable because I can't give you yesterday because I already owe you tomorrow, you know, so it's unpayable. So Luke's right trespasses. And Matthew's right, debt. One creates the other. And here's the other thing, and we all know this as well. Every debt gets paid by somebody. You take a loan from the bank, you pay it back, you paid it. You take a loan from the bank, you default on it, they forgive it, they paid it. Your friend comes, I need $5,000. You're like, okay, fine, whatever. You know, you give that to your friend. 
He pays you back. It's paid. If you like what he's done with it or you find that he's on hard times and frankly maybe you just don't even need it and you want to make an investment in his life and you write off the debt, who paid it? You paid it and you paid it to yourself. That's what God does for us in Jesus. He comes and he looks at us and he's going, oh my goodness, look at the situation that these people are in. Offenses against me, infinite. Can't pay me back because they owe me everything. And yet I love these people. So how do I fix this problem? How do I take them to myself and love? How do I give them a key? Because otherwise, they're locked out. And they can't get in. How do I pay an infinite debt? Not for one person, but for everyone who comes and claims my payment. I need an infinite man, a man who can, as a man, a person live a perfect life, and then offer validly a human life in the place of all of our imperfect ones. And I need him to be also God so he can offer a life of infinite value. Jesus is unique. There's no one like him and no one else even claiming, if you will, to be like him. He alone can pay an infinite debt, which is why he comes and he's like, listen, you know, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We get all offended by that. Do you want him to lie? Does anybody else qualify? Because I think he's trying to give us a key. Like, I think he's going, look, here's you. Here's the key. And it's a key that nobody else has. So a Christian is someone who knows who Jesus is, who makes Jesus known to others, who trusts in what Jesus has done. And then lastly, a Christian is someone who lives his or her life for Jesus. And I say that because after Jesus straightens Peter and the guys out on what it means to be the Christ and what that looks like for Jesus, he's like, okay, now, good that you're seated. I'm now going to explain what it's going to look like for you. Verse 24, he says to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And we've talked about this in the past, but the word deny, translated out of the Greek language, speaks of a one-time event. Like it's a moment where you go, I'm going to stop flirting with Jesus. And I'm going to go all in. He's not a great teacher. He can't be based on what he said. He's not a great thinker. He's not a you know, great philosopher. He didn't do wonderful things. He's the Christ, the son of the living God. I'm going to go all in on him. I will deny myself in favor of him. Let him deny himself, Jesus says, and take up his cross, the language of death, to which Luke, by the way, adds the word daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life, meaning the life that that person would live apart from Jesus, if left to himself, this is my life, I get to do what I want with it, so here's how I will do it. Whoever values that, whoever worships that, whoever says, no, no, that's the ultimate value for me. I want to save that. I'm going to work everything around saving that. Okay, whoever will save his life will lose it. The idea being, in the end, when he dies. But whoever loses his life for my sake, whoever makes the call, I'm not going to flirt, I'm going all in, and then gets up every day and imperfectly... (laughs) You know, says, okay, here's how I would live today, but oh, Jesus, I'm going to crucify that so that I can live for you. 
whoever loses his life for my sake will find it in the end when he dies. So what is Jesus doing with this statement? He's dividing all of humanity into two camps. And he's saying, okay, guys, so here's how it ends for both camps. So those who live for themselves, those who live for me. If you live for yourself and it's all about you and life and whatever it is that you can build and this life and and this is it, when you die, what do you lose? Because you leave it all behind, right? You lose yourself. If you live for Jesus and he is your passion, then when you die, what do you lose? Nothing. What do you gain for forever? You gain the one that you've been living for. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Galatians 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. Like he's been converted. He's gone all in. He's like, yeah, you know, I, me, myself, before this, (laughs) crucified. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in this body, in the flesh, I live how? By faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What is Paul's motive? It's love. He's overwhelmed with Jesus. He understands that God is not a taker but a giver. Good grief. What again is the gospel? It is that I gave my son that I might have you. God's not up there going, I don't know what I'm going to do without this life or without this life or without this life. And if these guys don't get this fixed, I don't know what I'm going to do. No, no, no. no. God is a giver. He's a giver. He's a giver. He's a giver. He wants you to have life. But it comes through dying. There is death. There is burial. There is resurrection. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Listen to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. He was a German theologian who, get this, was martyred 21 days before Hitler committed suicide. You're like, man, he's all the way to the finish line, almost. And they hung him. But I wonder if we would even know who he is if they hadn't. 39 years old, by the way, when he died. Brilliant, brilliant guy. His teachings have spread all over the world, inspiring people. Largely, not just because they're brilliant, but because he was martyred. And I don't think he got to heaven and went, oh my goodness, come on, I'm 39. Good grief. You know, Lord, cut me some stuff. Could we at least, can I bargain for 49? You know, Listen to what he says. He says, the cross is laid on every Christian. It's like Jesus took a cross, then he's like, okay, your turn. Like, different cross, but, but we die on it is the idea. The first Christian suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. I encounter Jesus and I die to myself. Because I want to. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death, and thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life. It meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ, which is actually the beginning of a God-fearing and happy life. And then here's his most famous line. He says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. 
And it's a joyful bidding. And it's a joyful dying because it leads to living. So here's how I want to close today, which is a little different than typically how we're going to do it or how we do it normally. Um, I want to bring those statements up, and they'll just be on the wall. And I'm going to walk you through them quickly, but what I want to do really is just give you time to walk through them yourself. Like, I want you to work your way through it. Okay, a Christian is, you know, someone who knows who Jesus is. And maybe you came in today and you're like, I was all in on good teacher, and Bono convinced me otherwise. Really? And now I need to kind of reckon with the fact that, no, 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 he's the Christ, the son of the living God, and there are implications to that. Okay, that's where you land. And you spend time with the Lord in that. You let him talk to you about that. You pray to him about that. He hears you. Let the Spirit lead you through that. A Christian is someone who makes Jesus known to others, you know? That's a convicting one because we've all got people in our office or our home or, you know, or our, our family or our school or whatever, and you know, we know they're going, come on. You know, they're waving at us through the door. We're like, no, that would be awkward. Maybe that's it. You land there and you say, you know what, Lord, I, give me opportunity. And you put a name or two on a list and you begin to pray for that list. And you look for that opportunity. And when the opportunity comes, you swallow hard and take it. You're laying down this life. What are people going to think of me? I don't know. Are we going to get to heaven and care about that? Like at that point, are we going to go, ah, man. I think we'll get there and go, why was I, you know, come on. Christian is someone who trusts in what Jesus has done. Maybe that's your move. It's actually move number one, right? He's the Christ, the son of the living God, and he's laid down his life for me. Like he has paid the debt. All I need to do is claim the payment by faith in him. Lord, unpayable for me. But I do believe that you love even me so much that this is what you've done for me in Christ. Forgive me, pay my debt. Bring me into your family. Welcome me home. Give me a key. I, I'll, I got friends. I mean, I, you know. Or lastly, a Christian is someone who lives his or her life for Jesus. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. What's your move? Just a move. Just take a couple of minutes and um, think that through with the Lord. Define that clearly for yourself. Like, you know, like when you walk out, you're going, yep, I know what it is. It's this. And then commit that in faith to him. And then we'll close in a song.